please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the 19th chapter of Job. The uh, book of Job we've been studying this fall, and uh, we've seen what a tremendous uh, book it is and what a tremendous place it occupies in the canon of Scripture, speaking to issues that are so pertinent to everyone. We remember the background of the book that Job was a very godly man and uh, had been singled out for notice by God and that Satan had been challenged with Job's uh, integrity, his uh, piousness, his godly demeanor. God had said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job as none like him in all the earth? He fears me. He shuns evil. And uh, Satan had accused Job of being a hypocrite. And Job only serves you because you bless him. Let me take away the things that you've given him. He would curse you to your face. He will no longer serve you. He will no longer trust you. And God uh, says, all right, you can take all that he has, but you cannot touch him. And, and one terrible day of calamity, Job loses all. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. He loses everything that he has. And uh, he responds in a tremendous way. He doesn't curse God, as Satan had predicted. It says he rends his clothes and he falls on his face and he worships God. And he says, The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Just an incredible response. Uh, then Satan comes back and asks permission to test him even further, to take his health. And he's given that permission and he strikes Job with a terrible skin disease. Uh, you had one boil. Think of if your whole body were covered with boils. And this is the situation Job is in. Again, he trusts God, and he says, the, uh, Shall we receive good at the hands of the Lord and not evil? In all this, Job sinned not, neither charged God foolishly, it says. At this point, Satan has another instrument. He brings three friends to comfort Job. But their approach to comfort is based on their theology of suffering. And their theology of suffering is God always blesses the righteous man who walks with him. God will never bless, uh, never allow to prosper a wicked and sinful man. Job, you're suffering so severely it indicates you're a wicked man or you've done something terrible. If you hadn't, God, who is a just God, would not have sent these things your way. And the fact that you're suffering as you are indicates you have been a hypocrite. You need to turn from your sin, own it, confess it, and repent. And Job denies their accusation. And, of course, uh, this is almost the most terrible part of his suffering as they began to press this point home. And uh, you can see what a frightful combination of weapons Satan has brought to bear. And it goes on and on. There's no let-up in it. 
Satan constantly presses his advantage. And Job appeals to the heavens or to God, but the heavens are silent. And he seems almost as if he's going to lose his balance on a number of occasions. He does make exaggerated statements about God. And he seems that he's going to slip totally away from his faith. As they've said, if God dealt with you this way and you were not some terrible sinner, he would be unjust. And this is very trying to Job. It seems to him that God has become his enemy for no reason whatsoever. And there's no let up. And this is where we are in the book. And uh, in chapter 19, verse 17, Job gives us a description of his uh, condition. He says in verse 17, My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. He speaks here of his estrangement from people, estrangement from his wife. My wife is estranged from me. I entreated her, but she's estranged from me. Even the, in a sense, most insignificant of people despise me. Yea, young children despise me. I rose and they spake against me. His close friends, he's estranged from them. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. And this, this was almost more than he could conceivably bear. This was almost the worst part of his trial. You know, you and I may not be being tried for the same thing, although you may be tried similarly. But yet, oftentimes, people will experience something of this estrangement from others. Christians will experience that. Why? Why would God take us through something like that? Calvin puts it like this. He says, God sometimes wishing to draw us to himself will cause us to be destitute of all human help. When we have problems, our tendency is to run to other people. And that's all right. God intends us to help and comfort one another. But the problem is, oftentimes, we pour our case out before them, we talk to them, we seek counsel from them, And we neglect to really turn to the Lord, to really seek his face, to really talk to him and draw nigh unto him. And he has to withdraw our other support sometimes to bring us to himself. His description of his condition in terms of his estrangement from people, but then in terms of his extremity of help. In verse 20, he says, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. You've heard that phrase, the skin of my teeth. Here's where it comes from. He says, I'm barely alive still. My, I'm emaciated. My bone cleaves to my skin. You can see all of my bones. An extreme situation as he describes his condition. And then his supplication for pity. He loses his self-composure, and he just pleads with his friends to show him pity. Verse 21, Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends. And he gives the reason. For the hand of God hath touched me. 
You know, we use the phrase, he touched me, God touched me, in a little different way than he's using it. There's a song, he touched me, and we mean in terms of God's blessed me so tremendously. He's changed my life. Job says he touched me, and he doesn't mean he blessed me so tremendously. He means he touched me, he struck me, uh, he's about demolished me. Uh, you remember the story of the fellow who attended the Thanksgiving service in a church, and uh, it was a testimonial service, and everyone was standing up and telling how the Lord had blessed them. And one stood up and said, well, I'm so thankful because the Lord did this great thing. And another said, I'm so thankful the Lord's blessed my business. Another said, the Lord gave us a new baby. And just everybody in the room in this testimonial service got up and thanked the Lord. And one fellow didn't say anything. And finally, everyone else had spoken but this one fellow. And the pastor said, well, Brother Jones, don't you have anything that you want to say that the Lord's done for you this year? He said, well, I wasn't going to say anything. If you'll remember, uh, back in May, my house burned down. And uh, then in June, my crops were ruined. And then uh, in uh, August, I wrecked the car and I was in the hospital for six days. And, and uh, then my business went bankrupt. And Well, what did the Lord do for me? He just mighty near ruined me this year. That's what he did. <laughs> and uh, that's sort of what Job is saying to God touched me. Have pity on me. Isn't he misstating that? Shouldn't he say the hand of Satan touched me? After all, it was Satan who took these things. Or shouldn't he say the robbers took my uh, cattle and uh, the storm took my children and uh, disease has taken my health? Well, he could have said it that way. That would have been true. Disease did take his health. The robbers did take his cattle. Satan did, behind the scenes, instigate those things. He was the one who did these things. But ultimately, it was from God. Ultimately, God sent these things to Job. They could not have come to him unless God had allowed it. So Job is doing right when he traces it back up to the hand of God. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. That's right. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's important that we learn to do that, that we learn to trace every blessing that comes or every trial that comes into our life all the way back up to the hand of God. Trace it above your situation. Trace it above your tormentor or whatever the condition is all the way up to God. Because nothing can touch you apart from his permission. Everything that touches you was within his plan from all eternity. In Acts chapter 4, after the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, the disciples gather. They've been threatened not to preach anymore in his name. And they, in their prayer, they quote the second psalm. And in the second psalm, written a thousand B.C., David had prophesied about the kings of the earth and the rulers thereof set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And they quote that psalm and they say, of a truth, that's exactly what happened. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together against your anointed for to do whatsoever Thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done to carry out your plan. 
All those evil acts were within the plan of God. God is not the author of evil. God did not make those men kill his son. It was against God's revealed will. He said, love your neighbor, and so on. It was against his revealed will. But it was according to his secret plan, his secret will, part of which was revealed in prophecy. Now, he includes evil acts within his plan in such a way that he's not the author of the evil. Men and Satan are the author of the evil. But nonetheless, it's within his plan. Nothing happens by accident. And if it's in his plan, he means it for good to them that love the Lord. The plan is designed along those lines. And the plan is designed to bring him glory ultimately. Even the wrath of man shall praise him ultimately. And that's the miracle of the whole thing. So they trace the death of Christ back and the evil actions of those men back ultimately to God. Whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel, thy plan, determined before, predestined to be done. We must learn to do this. Otherwise, our God is less than the biblical picture of God. Your God is too small if you take any other view. And you rob yourself of the true biblical comfort that Scripture gives. When we face trials, this thing didn't happen to you by accident. There's no such thing as luck. God controls all. The Lord gave. The Lord taketh away. Trust the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, we see uh, his supplication for their pity. Then his lamentation concerning his words in verse 23. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Job wants his words to be written for in permanent condition for future generations to see. What is it he wants recorded? He wants his protestation of innocence recorded. He wants... Uh, to be vindicated on the fact that he did not do these terrible things he's accused of. He was not a hypocrite, and yet he so suffered. He wants that written forever. It's interesting, God granted him the request, didn't it? Here we are reading his words right now. But then he, he seems to change his perspective. And he comes off with a tremendous affirmation of faith. A profound affirmation of faith. In uh, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And since he seems to be saying here, really it's not necessary that my words be written in stone, because I have one who will vindicate me at the last day. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. He will vindicate my cause. And I, I don't need it recorded elsewhere. I can commit it to him. Now, in this affirmation, you notice the phrase that he uses. He's, he's speaking here of God or the Lord. I know that my Redeemer liveth. The word Redeemer in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is goel, G-O-E-L. And in Old Testament law, your next of kin was your redeemer, who would 
uh, defend your cause when you were in trouble. If you had to mortgage something, he was to come and he could purchase the mortgage and he could restore it to you and so on. Well, Job and others in the Old Testament, David and Isaiah and others, take this concept of your near of kin who will defend your cause and apply it to the Lord in Psalm 19. Uh, David says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, my near of kin who will defend my cause. The New Testament, of course, as you progress, pours much more specific content into the thought of the Lord as our Redeemer. And it applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as our near of kin, came and defended our cause, has redeemed us. We had mortgaged our right to heaven, in a sense. We had lost it by our sin. But he comes and purchases it back for us at the price of his own blood. In Ephesians 1.7, in whom, in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for us, acknowledging our bankruptness, trust him that he paid in full for my sins, surrender to him as my Lord, then he's my redeemer. I've been set free. I've been restored to uh, having heaven as my eternal destiny. And uh, all of this is by grace. All of this is a gift. It's not something that we earn or deserve. So here's his affirmation about a Redeemer. The Lord will defend his cause and will vindicate him one day. The... Friends were accusing him and calling him a hypocrite, but the Lord would one day vindicate him. He's his Redeemer. My Redeemer lives. He's Job's by virtue of the fact that Job has committed his case to him. He's placed his trust in him. I know that my Redeemer lives. He lives versus men who die, versus Job who's dying. He lives. Of course, and the anthem that we had earlier, the solo, uh, you had this Redeemer's living tied in with the resurrection of Christ. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. His affirmation about the fact that his Redeemer would stand at the latter day upon the earth. The latter day scripturally uh, comes to speak of the coming of the Messiah and uh, his kingdom. It could be a reference to Christ's coming. Uh, we don't know exactly how clearly Job saw those things. But here it is, this affirmation, my Redeemer will stand on the earth. The latter day could be taken all the way up to Judgment Day when ultimately his cause would be vindicated, when his Redeemer would uh, name him, would vindicate him. Not only do we have this affirmation about a Redeemer, but about his resurrection. In uh, verse 26, 
And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins or my heart be consumed within me. Now this is a very difficult passage to translate. The Hebrew words are difficult. And that's why different versions of Scripture, different translations of the Bible, record this a little differently. For instance, in the King James it says that uh, yet in my flesh shall I see God. The American Revised Version says, without my flesh shall I see God. The New International Version says, in my flesh shall I see God. The thing that you wrestle with as you study this was Job affirming that he would see God even though his body was destroyed yet his spirit would go to heaven and he would see God with his spiritual eyes? Or was he teaching here the doctrine of the resurrection of the body? That although his body would be destroyed by worms, it was now decaying and it would be destroyed, yet that same body would be raised from the grave and in that body he would one day see God with his own physical eyes. Is that what he's affirming? You do have the doctrine of the resurrection of the body taught in the Old Testament. If this is teaching it, this would be the earliest affirmation of it. You have, for instance, David in the 16th Psalm, where he speaks about, My flesh shall rest in hope. My flesh shall rest in the grave in the confident expectation of rising. Thou uh, wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. You won't leave my soul separated from my body, and you won't let my body corrupt or decay. An affirmation of the resurrection of the body. Now that's the verse that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. And he said, look, David said, you won't leave my soul in Sheol or Hades, neither will you suffer my body to decay. David's body did decay, says Peter. It's right here with us in a tomb. So David couldn't have been speaking of himself. He must have been speaking of the Messiah. And David, through the Spirit who inspired him, prophesied the resurrection of the Messiah, whose body did not decay, and his soul was not left separated from his body. It re-entered his body. The body was raised from the dead, and we were eyewitnesses of that. You have an affirmation, an affirmation of the resurrection of the body in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 26, and verse 7, that God will destroy in this mountain, in Mount Zion, in the body of his true people, the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all the nations. He said, all people have a veil that covers them, the veil of mourning over death. But God will destroy that veil. He will swallow up death in victory. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people, namely death, will he take away from off all the earth. God will destroy death. This is the verse that's quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. O grieve, uh, where is thy victory, O death, where is thy sting? And so on. It goes on to say that God has swallowed up death in victory through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for those who place their trust in Christ. goes on to say in Isaiah 26, the next chapter, verse 19, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, and the earth shall cast out her dead. The earth shall cast out her dead. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. That's the teaching of the resurrection of the body. And that's why when Jesus came 700 years later, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body was an orthodox Jewish belief. Of course, Christ was the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. So here's an affirmation. It's, it's hard to say dogmatically whether Job is affirming life after death or specifically the resurrection of the body. Calvin takes it the resurrection of the body. Calvin says this. Besides, when Job says he will see his Redeemer from his flesh, he intends that he will be restored in a new state, his skin having been so eaten. For, he says, that even his bones will be consumed, and nothing will remain whole. And then he adds, From my flesh I shall see God. And how will he see him from his flesh? That is to say, I shall be restored as I was previously, and I shall yet see my God. So he confesses that God will be powerful enough to raise him up. Now we see this uh, affirmation concerning his Redeemer, concerning life after death and possibly the resurrection of his body, and his assurance of these things. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Not I think so. I know that I have a Redeemer. I know that he will vindicate my cause. Now, Job, obviously, by the Spirit of God, as Matthew Henry says, is carried beyond himself in this affirmation. He's, he's given a real burst of light here. As you look at some other passages in Job 14, for instance, when he talks about death and life after death, he's very hazy. Uh, he uh, will make statements in terms of uh, the fact that uh, in the grave is darkness and if a man dies, shall he live again? And hazy statements. And at this point, there's a burst of light given as he's carried beyond himself by the Spirit of God to make this affirmation and confession and revelation of truth about a Redeemer and about life after death and even possibly the resurrection. Matthew Henry says he expresses this even to his own surprise as he's moved by the Spirit. If Job could make such an affirmation as that, how much more should you and I be able to say that? I know that my Redeemer liveth. 
Think of where we are versus where he is. We've seen that Messiah come and stand on the earth. We've seen him crucified. We see how he redeems. And he shed his own precious blood for us. We've seen his resurrection. As God says, Amen, my son has paid in full. And I now raise him from the dead and set him at my own right hand. We've seen the testimony of eyewitnesses who handled him after his resurrection, saw the nail prints, could put their fingers in them. Uh, we've seen the promises that he makes. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ who died, yea, rather, who is risen from the dead who is seated at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Think of those tremendous promises. If Job can say with a ringing affirmation, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I shall see him with my own eyes, I'll stand in his presence and be vindicated. How much more should you and I be able to echo that with confidence? I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I understand that's what life is all about. I know who I am. I'm a son of God. I know where I'm going. I'm going to be with my maker. I know my purpose in life. Serve him. I know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Shouldn't we be able to just ring out those affirmations? If Job could do it, how much more should we be able to do it? And yet this is a tremendous triumph of faith for Job. Satan has thrown everything at him that he could throw, and Job stumbles and totters and almost loses his balance and comes back up fighting, and sense and reason seem to urge him in one direction. God cannot be for you. He's your enemy. He's doing all these things to you. And then faith recalls and say, no, no, he's for me. I'll trust him though he slay me. I know my Redeemer lives. And suddenly he comes out with this tremendous affirmation. And here's the climax of the book. As he triumphs over Satan, curse God, no, I know my Redeemer lives. I'll trust him. I will not curse him. Faith has come with its whispers before. And as faith has struggled with this, it's grown stronger until it can come out under the inspiration of the Spirit of God with this tremendous affirmation of faith. That's what you and I have to do. This makes a tremendous difference to Job in his situation. To be able to make that affirmation gets him on top of it. It gets his head above water. It makes all the difference to know that God is with him in his struggles. To know that God loves him and that God is controlled and somehow God means it for my good. And I can trust him. That makes an awful lot of difference. And that's the very position you and I have to take when troubles come our way. We have to believe the word of God. When I was a military pilot, I would get vertigo. Vertigo is when you, you go into a turn. And uh, because you're in this turn, the G's, the gravity pull on your inner ear, causes the fluid to swirl in a particular direction. It tells you you're in a turn. But when you level out of that turn, the fluid is still swirling. 
And it tells you you're still in the turn so that you're extremely tempted to roll on over into an opposite turn in order to achieve what feels like balance to you. And what you have to do is you look at your instrument panel and you say, it says that I'm flying straight and level. But all of my senses, my reason, every emotion in my body tells me and I'm in a turn and I've got to level out. But I'm going to believe my instrument panel. I don't care what my reason tells me. I don't care what my senses tell me. I must put my faith in my instrument panel. That's the only way of safety. And that's exactly what we have to do. When life tumbles in, uh, when your son is killed, or when your family is swept away, or when your business goes down the drain, instead of believing that God is your enemy, you must say, I've trusted him. I know that all this he means for my good. His word says it. That's my instrument panel. I will believe the word of God. I know my Redeemer liveth. That he will vindicate me that he is my friend, not my enemy. And I trust him to bring good out of this ultimately for me, no matter whether I can see it or not. And when you do that, you've gained a tremendous victory. You're triumphing over Satan. That's what we must do. He has a final admonition to his comforters in verse 28. Ye would say, why persecute we him? Ye should say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? I'm on faith's foundation. And you're persecuting me. Why are you doing this? You one day will have to answer to God for this. Verse 29. Be ye afraid of the sword. The admonition. God's sword. The sword of God's wrath. For wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. I must stand before God. I will stand. He will vindicate me. You must stand on judgment day. How will you stand? Do you have a redeemer? You must answer. What about you? This is the thrust. You know, full assurance is a tremendous thing. It's available. What a difference it makes. Can you say, I know that my Redeemer liveth? That's biblical. God would have us to know that, that position. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. That's biblical. To be able to sing and mean it and know it, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of blood, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Can you sing that? Can you know that? Every Christian has that privilege. Now, you may have struggles. You can be a true Christian and not have that assurance. But this we need to come to and need to give as our confession, as our affirmation, just as Job does. I know my Redeemer liveth. And then we need to throw that affirmation into our conditions, our situation, when we're suffering. It makes our affliction much easier to bear. Paul says this light affliction, which is but for a moment. Light, momentary, it is when you look at it from the standpoint of eternity. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
While we focus on, while we look, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's the way. Throw this into your situation. H.G. Spofford was a lawyer in Chicago. His wife and three daughters sailed to England. He was to join them later. The ship sank. His wife wired and said, Our daughters are drowned. Come to me. She was in Wales. He caught the next ship to join his wife. And, of course, he was grief-stricken. The ship sailed right over the spot where his daughters had been drowned. And as he did, as he did, he wrote a song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What's he saying? He's saying, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And in this situation, I can look to him. I can trust in him. Can you say that? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, if you've never personally committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, why don't you do that right now? Why not invite him into your life as your Redeemer? Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I need a Redeemer. I need you to forgive my sins. I need that kind of assurance. I must stand one day before God and answer. And I trust you as my Redeemer to forgive me. I surrender my will to you as my Master. Come into my life. Amen.